All right. When when we lived um, in Canada near Vancouver, uh, one time I had tickets to go to a U2 concert. And uh, one of my friends who lived in Portland, really good friend of mine, made the drive up to go with me. And we were hanging out. We were catching up the day before, looking forward to the concert. And, and then the youth pastor of our, my church uh, called, and he said, did you hear on the radio that in about an hour, U2 is doing a live concert video shoot down at the arena for one of their songs? And um, this afternoon, they put out a call for a few thousand people to show up for free to get to be a part of it. And, and, and my friend and I looked at each other, and, and we, we were like, we've got to go try to get in there. So we ate a really quick dinner. We raced down to the city. And by the time we got there and, and found parking, it had already started inside, and there was no one around. We'd gotten the message late, and, and uh, we didn't get there in time. But... but we've got to try to get in. And so we go racing around the building. We finally find a door with a security guard at the door. And now what? What do we say to get in? <laughs> that, that's the issue that each of us faces with God. I'll finish the story later. <laughs> but think about God. <laughs> How do we gain access to God's presence? This problem has been made famous by a, a thousand St. Peter at the pearly gates jokes, right? A businessman dies and goes to heaven. He shows up at the pearly gates, and St. Peter says, why should I let you in? Well, just to finish the, the story of my friend and me, we just gave the guy our best pleading story about how we lived 45 minutes away. We'd found out about it late. We'd gone through a lot of trouble to get there, and thankfully he let us in. Is that all it takes, though? Is that all it takes to get into God's presence? A good story about all the reasons God should let us in? Never mind God, would that even work to get into the White House? Just to show up and give all the reasons that the president should make time for you. Well, Paul is going to answer this question about what it takes to get into God's presence in today's passage. But for Paul, it's not just a question about getting through the pearly gates when we die. Rather, it's a question about getting into God's presence now, having access to God now. It's a question, as we've been seeing over the past few weeks, of having a relationship with God and becoming a part of God's family. Remember, it all started with Abraham. God had sought out a man named Abraham in, in a land called Chaldee, Chaldees, which is, uh, became known as the land of Babylon, a long time ago, maybe 4,000 years ago. And God had said to him, we read in Genesis 12, from your country, or rather go from your country, from your people, from your father's household, to a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Remember that? God was going to make Abraham into a great family, a great nation, and not just any family, but God's family. God wanted to have a special relationship with this people who, who, whom God would bless, and, and God would give access to his presence. Just like Sasha and Malia Obama have access they don't have trouble getting into the White House. They don't have trouble getting into the inner circle around the president. They're already in because they're family. 
And that's what God was offering to Abraham and to his children after him. But Paul pointed out in Romans 2 and 3, there was a problem. Abraham's children had lost that access. Right? They'd they'd failed to be faithful to God. They'd failed to trust God, to put their faith in God. They'd rebelled against God. They broke their side of the covenant agreement that God had made with them through Abraham and then through Moses. And so after many second chances, God had eventually disciplined his people by kicking them out of his presence and sending them into exile. Now, At this point, they're on the outside looking in, much like the other nations of the world were, the Gentile nations who were not descended from Abraham. And Paul had told us about those Gentile nations too, back in Romans 1. Remember the downward slide we looked at? First, the Gentiles had had failed to keep God at the center of their world. They'd stopped giving him thanks and worship. They had marginalized him. And as a result, their thinking became futile and foolish. And so they next turned to worshiping idols uh, instead of worshiping God. They made idols, they worshiped those instead. And so as a result of that, they started becoming like the idols they worshiped, living immoral lives. Instead of doing what was right and good, they were doing anything they felt like instead. And so whether Jew or, or Gentile, Paul told us, everyone has turned away from God Everyone has broken the relationship between them and God. And so everyone falls short of God's wonderful vision for humankind. And even more, everyone is guilty before the heavenly court of cosmic rebellion. But there's good news. Paul explained it in Romans 3. God took the rap. God took the punishment that we deserve. Through Jesus Christ, God took on himself the consequences of our sin and failure. God paid the debt that we owe. God offered by his sheer grace to justify anyone, Paul said, who put their faith in his son Jesus. And remember, we saw that justify means to declare righteous. It means that God declares that we are right with God again that we have fulfilled all the demands and the obligations of our relationship with God, things are right between us and God. And we saw in chapter 4 that God graciously offered this gift not only to the Jews, Abraham's blood descendants, but to everyone else too. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is now welcome into God's family, not because they've earned it, but as a free gift of grace. And so Paul says in our passage today, summarizing all he said before, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We now have peace with God. There's no tension, no war, no uncertainty, no shame. The air is clear. The relationship is solid and secure. God and we are on good terms. We have gained access. We're in. We're part of God's family again, part of Abraham's people, the people God has promised to bless, the people God has called together to be a blessing to all nations. We now stand in God's grace We didn't talk our way back in like my friend and I did at the U2 concert. We didn't earn our way back in. 
No, God invited us to come in, though we didn't deserve it. In fact, God himself paid the price of our admission through Jesus' death on the cross just because he loved us and he wanted us near. So now what? We're in. Now what? Well, the first thing Paul says we can do is brag a little. Boast about it. Not in a prideful way, not boasting in ourselves, but just telling how great the thing is that we found. Just like my friend and I did when we got home from that video shoot the next day, we had to tell all our friends how awesome it was, right? We got in. We were there. There we are. Can you see us? (laughs) That's the kind of boasting Paul is talking about. Everyone's wondering. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. What we boast about tells us a lot about what our identity is, about what, how we view ourselves and what's important to us, who we think of ourselves as. You can think of it as, as being like the advertising tagline for uh, new era sports apparel. Maybe you've, you've seen the logo in a football jersey or at a Yankees game. Does anyone know what the tagline is? No. Fly your own flag. Fly your own flag. We do that, right? We, we show off what's important to us and what we're proud of. You know, maybe, maybe we're a Mac person, not a PC person. And, and so we love that glowing logo on the back of the MacBook, right? Or uh, maybe we only shop for school clothes at a certain shop, and so we love to wear those brands. Or, or maybe we go or our kids go to a certain college, and so we have that college sticker on the back of our car window, right? And we're, we're proud of that. We fly our own flag. It's what we're proud of. It's it's how we identify ourselves. And that's what Paul is getting at when he talks about boasting here. And if you remember earlier in Romans, Paul had been challenging us about what we boast in. He told us in chapter 3, don't boast that you keep God's law, that, that you obey his commands. Don't fly that flag. You can't boast in that because you don't do it well enough. For, for it to get you anywhere with God or, or for it to make you better than anybody else before God. So don't find your identity in your religious behavior. Now in today's passage, Paul is going to tell us what we can boast in. Now that we're in by grace, now that God has given us access to his presence, he's made us a part of his family through no virtue of our own, Now Paul tells us what we can be proud of, how we can identify ourselves, what flag we can fly. And he gives us three things. Verse 2, he says, boast in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, boast in our sufferings. Now, my Bible says glory in our sufferings. In Greek, it's the same word as in verse 2, boast in our sufferings. And then verse 11, boast in God. Let's look at these three together. First, we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. And let me unpack that phrase for us. Hope in the Bible is a little different than what hope means when we say, I hope it warms up soon, right? (laughs) We say hope and we mean, I don't know if it will, but I wish it would. (laughs) That's not what hope means in the Bible. In the Bible, hope means something that we look forward to that we're sure of. 
We're sure of it because God has promised it and we can count on God to be faithful to keep his promises. So Paul says we boast in our certainty that we will experience the glory of God. Remember back in Romans 3, Paul had said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now Paul says we boast in our certainty of the glory of God. We are going to finally experience the thing that all these years we've fallen short of. So what's the glory of God? Well, I love theologian J.I. Packer's definition. He says, God's glory is God on display. God on display. It's God fully seen in all of God's majesty. And the Old Testament says that one day God's glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. Remember, Paul told us in Romans 1 that this world, this whole creation is meant to display God's glory. And above all, we are created in God's image to reflect God's glory. But we've fallen short of that. And this world, we have led into a place of becoming bent and twisted and marred and distorted. God's glory isn't clearly seen nearly to the extent that it could be and it should be. But one day it will be, Paul says. One day all will be put right, and that's our hope. I love the way Rich Mullins expresses this in one of his songs. I've I've quoted this before, but it bears repeating. He says, I believe there is a place where people live in perfect peace, where there is food on every plate, where work is rewarded and rest is sweet, where the color of your skin won't get you in or keep you out. Where justice reigns and truth finally wins its hard-fought war against fear and doubt. I believe there will come a time, Lord, I pray it's not too far off. There will be no poverty or crime. There will be no greed, and we will learn how to love. And children will be safe in their homes, and there will be no violence out on the street. The old will not be left alone, and the strong will learn how to care for the weak. That's the glory of God. That's a a world that that reflects what God is like with God himself right at the center of it. And Paul says that that if we're in, if we have a place in, in God's family again, back among Abraham's people who are called to bless the nations, then we have certainty that that glory is the future that God has for us. And so we fly that flag We boast in that. That's our identity. We are a people who are looking forward to and who are working for that glorious kind of world with our glorious God present right at the center of it. And even though we experience setbacks and disappointments now, that's okay because we know that God's glory wins in the end. And even more, we are guaranteed a place in it. Now, let me ask you a question. How well are you doing at living your life now to bring about a world covered with God's glory? Have you done everything in your power, even this past week, to see that world come about? I haven't. Of course, I've done some things, but too many times I've been apathetic or or I've, I've looked out for myself. In some cases, I've brought strife and and selfishness to others instead of the kind of goodness and love needed to bring God's glory. I've worked at cross-purposes to God's heart and to God's plans. I still fall short of the glory of God. 
So, so how do I know that, that in the end, God will let me enjoy his glory? How do I know that, that I'll become the kind of person who can live in God's glory without messing it up? And how do I know that in the end, God will welcome me into his presence and into the perfect world, the perfect glorious world that he will create? After all, Paul's already told us back in Romans 2 that one day God will judge everyone and God will offer glory, honor, and peace to those worthy of it, but trouble, distress, and wrath to the others. How do I know for sure I'll get to enjoy his glory and not face his judgment? Well, Paul has a lot to say in our passage about that because he wants us, or he wants to to make our hope so sure that it becomes part of our identity so that we can fly that flag. In verse 6, Paul begins by reminding us who Christ died for. Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the godly, but the ungodly. Paul says very rarely will someone give up their life for someone else. Rarely will someone do it even for a righteous person. I mean, maybe occasionally someone will do it for a really good person. We've heard stories of that, right? Someone gives his life for a war buddy in a battle, or um, a husband might give his life to save the life of his wife. But those are the exceptions, right? And usually these, those kind of great acts of self-sacrifice are motivated by great love. But how many people give their lives for known criminals, for troublemakers, for terrorists? How many people give their lives for their enemies? for those who are thorns in their side, you know? And yet Paul says that is exactly what God did for us. Verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 10. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Paul's saying, do you realize, do you grasp just how much God loves you? Just how deep and true his love goes. God loved you so much. He saw so much potential for you to be a part of his glory that even though you were ungodly, you were a sinner, you were his enemy, nevertheless, God laid down his life for you. Wow, what kind of a God does that? (laughs) What kind of love does God have? Well, Paul continues, if if God loves you that much, loved you that much while you were his enemy, how do you think he's going to treat you now that you're his friend? If God's done so much for you already to reconcile you back to himself, now that you're in his family, do you think he's going to give up on you now? Of course not. And so for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, we have hope. We have certainty that on the last day, we will be invited into God's glory. And so in the meantime, we work for that glory now. Second thing we boast in. We boast also in our sufferings, verse 3. That's the other half of this, right? Because God's glory hasn't fully come yet. We still live in a broken world, a hurting world, a fallen world. And there are vested interests, there are power brokers who strongly oppose this world getting sorted out. 
And so to pursue the world that God wants to establish, the world full of his glory, is going against the grain. And what happens when you go against the grain? You get splinters. <laughs> and, and so as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, he teaches us that redeeming this world is going to require us, require us to love our enemies, to speak unpopular truths, to serve other people, to, to side with the lowly and the suffering and the last and the least and the littlest. That's what we sign up for when we choose to follow Christ. But Paul says we can boast in those sufferings. We can fly that flag and say, yeah, that's what it means to be one of Jesus' followers. Followers of Jesus aren't ashamed or surprised that we suffer. But instead we realize, verse 3, that that our sufferings produce perseverance. We learn to hang in there. We learn to go through hard times. We, we learn to endure because it's worth it. The Greek word translated character, uh, character here, which is the, the second word that, that perseverance produces character, this word has the idea of, of being tested and, and of passing the test. When we persevere in suffering, we prove that we have character. That, that we don't give up or, or chicken out, that we're, we're courageous and faithful. We can be counted on even when times get tough. There are people like that in this congregation. Uh, there are people who, who've gone through and are going through hard times. There, there's chaos in their families or in their workplaces. Their hearts get broken. Their hopes get disappointed. They work hard for, for what they believe in and, and people close to them callously or recklessly mess it up. But they persevere. They, they stay faithful. They, they keep being dependable. They keep loving and forgiving over and over again. That's character. That's testedness. And Paul says that kind of character just further increases our hope. I don't know about you, but that's been true of me. I've, I've been through enough pain and, and disappointment and, and heartache myself that I am so ready for God's glory. Whenever that ship sails, I'm ready to get on it. And as we wait and as we hope, as we suffer and we struggle through trials, we, we sometimes get discouraged and, and we wonder where God is in it all. Does, does God still care? And it would be an awful lot for us to have to always just mentally and cognitively believe and remember that, that God loves us if nothing around us ever seemed or felt that way. And so God is happy to, to let us feel his love, to let us experience that his love is real. Not always, but from time to time. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Have you ever experienced that? I, I did week before last when I was up in Boston. I was part of a, a team with, with uh, 3DM. We were training some other church leaders um, who are trying to grow in, in leading their churches. Just like a couple years ago, we were there learning and growing. And um, these leaders were trying to be more intentional um, about, about doing what Jesus did, uh, being families on mission, making disciples, growing one another up spiritually, reaching out together to extend God's kingdom, to, to see God's glory come in the world. 
and as these leaders stretch toward this and they faced their own failures and weaknesses and, and thought about their own struggles and, and the barriers and the oppositions that they face, there was some suffering during the week. There, there were some tears. There was some, some discouragement and some fear and, and some doubt as they made plans as they want to live into this over the next six months. Well, on the last day, we all had a time of worship together as we were wrapping things up. And um, we trainers, we were going around, we were praying for these different leadership teams that, that God would encourage them, that God would strengthen them, that God would give them courage and hope for what was ahead and, and what they were going to face as they went back into their communities, back into their churches. And, and after we would prayed for everyone, we were just worshiping together. And, and as we did, I had the most overwhelming sense of God's presence and God's pleasure. Like God was saying, these are my kids. And they're trying hard to please me. They're trying to prioritize my glory, even though they're suffering in the process. And I am so pleased with them. And I was just moved to tears, and others were as well. It was the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love into my heart and into our hearts. I don't have experiences like that very often, uh, but when I do, it's so wonderful. Or, or another time, when I was teaching English in, in Budapest, Hungary, one evening my teammate and I decided that we were going to drop in on two other female American teachers who lived nearby in our neighborhood a few blocks away. So we dropped in on them, uh, and one of them, the young woman, opens the door, and we say hey, and she invites us in, and we give her hugs, and, and then she has this strange look on her face. And, and we're like, what? <laughs> and she says, I was just feeling far from God, and I was feeling lonely. And, and I was praying to God, and I was saying, God, just let me feel your love. I, I need a hug from you. And, and then you two guys knock on the door, <laughs> And God shows his love through you. And we were like, cool. <laughs> um, and that's when I learned that often God's love gets poured out to us through the people around us. Well, however God chooses to, to pour his love into our hearts, and however rarely or however often we experience it, Paul is saying that, that the Christian faith isn't just a cold intellectual exercise. It's not just a stoic duty-based thing. No, it's a relationship, and God wants us to know how much he loves us. And we need to experience that, especially when we're going through suffering. It keeps our hope strong. It, it reminds us of why the suffering is worth it when time to time God pours his love out in our hearts. And so we boast in our hope, and we boast in our suffering. And finally, third, really quickly, we boast in God himself. Paul wants to make sure as he ends this passage that God stays at the center. Because it isn't suffering for suffering's sake that we boast in. That's just a martyr complex. And it isn't that we're so hopeful and heavenly-minded that we boast in. Because that's just escapism. No, it's God that we boast in. We only embrace our suffering because it brings us closer to God and gives us more of God's character. And we only look forward to the day when God's glory covers everything because God will be right at the center of it. It's not the gifts that we seek, ultimately. It's the giver. And so the flag we fly above all flags is God. 
Ultimately, God is our identity. God is who we're about. How can we not? God loved us so much that he gave all of himself to reconcile us to him. God loved us so much that he gave all of himself to give us access back into his family. And so it's God's glory that we work for. It's God's glory that we look forward to with hope. And it's God's glory that is worth suffering for in the meantime. To God be all the glory. Let's respond in worship.